This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. My name is Torsten Bell. I'm the Chief Executive of the Foundation. Now, most uh, sessions in this building on jobs right now are focused on some of the immediate questions of whether we're going to manage to get inflation under control via higher interest rates without costing loads of jobs or whether firms can't hire anybody anymore because the workers are so full of power due to the low unemployment rate that that's causing trouble. But we're not today talking about the short-term nature of the labour market and about jobs and instead looking ahead to some of the longer-term drivers of change in our jobs market, specifically today on the net zero transition and what it means for jobs, what it means for jobs changing, whether that means jobs going and new jobs being created, or it means existing jobs just changing how they take place. That's the topic we're focusing on today, and we're doing that uh, as part of our large uh, research programme jointly with the London School of Economics called the Economy 2030 Inquiry, funded by the Nuffield uh, Foundation, and we'll be shortly publishing the interim report of that large project in early July, so keep an eye out uh, for that book. Today, stay focused on the net zero transition specifically, and we're going to be partly focusing on some of the shorter term changes over the next 10 years, but taking some wider view as we go. Uh, and to support that, there's a report out this morning, and one of the report's authors, Kathleen Henhan, who is a uh, senior economist at the Resolution Foundation, is going to give you, first of all, a summary of that uh, report. And then we've got a great panel to discuss it. So you're going to hear from Darren Jones, MP, who is the chair of the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy uh, Committee and has been a Labour MP for Bristol Northwest since 2017. And then you're going to hear from Rian Kelly, who is the UK Corporate Affairs Director at National Grid and has to do a lot of this stuff when this net zero transition actually starts to happen. And then we're going to hear from all of you. As always, you can go on to uh, Slido. It's hashtag net zero jobs. We are nothing if not imaginative in our hashtags here to ask questions and to vote in some of the polls. So that is the plan this morning. Kathleen, kick us off. What is in the report? Cool. Um, thanks, Torsten. And before I kick off, I just want to thank my uh, co-authors from the LSE and from the Resolution Foundation, Anna Valero, Gu Ventura, Capucine Riom, Stefano Cellini, Charlie McCurdy, and Molly Broom. So very much, as you can tell, a joint effort here. Um, when we're thinking about the UK's uh, goal of meeting net zero carbon emissions by 2050, I think there's two things we need to keep in mind. So on the one hand, we've already made huge amounts of progress having territorial carbon emissions between 1990 and 2020. But on the other hand, we know that to meet this 2050 target, we really have to accelerate that progress and we have to do it in part by moving into really new areas. So for example, making changes in the way we heat our buildings, including our homes, in the way we travel, the way we eat, the products we consume, just to name a few. Um, now, some think that the transition will bring with it significant amounts of job destruction, sort of rehashing the 1980s and the trauma that deindustrialization and unemployment brought to particular parts of the UK. Um, for others, the net, zero the net zero transition represents sort of, you know, a great opportunity and, you know, they see it as primarily revitalizing left behind areas, bringing jobs to their people. Um, so in this briefing note, we set out to understand the transition and how it will affect workers and what policymakers should be thinking about in the here and now. 
Now, given the types of jobs that we identify as being susceptible to change, it's worth saying that we don't think we're going to see huge amounts of job destruction. But in order to get to this place, we do a couple of things in the report. We first identify sets of brown and green jobs that we think are likely to experience big changes in the tasks and also in the technologies that they deploy. We set out core differences between different types of green and brown jobs. We then look at where we think demand for new green occupations is going to come from. And finally, we look at the characteristics of workers who tend to move into green jobs and also look, at least in the recent past, of the odds of someone moving from a brown job to a green job. So when we talk about change, we tend to think about it affecting brown and green jobs in a number of different ways. So we think that there's a small number of occupations you know, accounting for a relatively small share of employment that will experience some sort of decline, and this is primarily in you know, directly fossil fuel extracting industries. Um, a much larger share of brown jobs, by contrast, we think, will just experience really big changes in, again, the technologies and the tasks that they tend to deploy. Now, when it comes to green jobs, you know, we all know about demand for new and emerging green occupations, so everything from you know, solar panel installers, wind turbine engineers, to heat pump installers. And these, you know, the demand for these is going to rise, and also the tasks that they use will develop significantly over the next few years. And finally, we also think about wide-scale pre-existing occupations who are just going to experience some sort of change in the tasks that they deploy. So for example, an operations manager um, picking up new skills by taking on their env environmental sustainability portfolio, et cetera. So now to the gritty, nitty gritty of what we did in terms of defining green and brown jobs. I'll keep it relatively simple here. Uh, but the point is uh, we identified 34 occupations representing about 4% of UK employment that we call brown changer occupations. And what these are are occupations that are overwhelmingly represented in the UK's most carbon emissions intensive industries. And they're really likely to experience some sort of change over the next decade. When it comes to green jobs, we identify uh, 41 green core task occupations, which I'll just call green and brown from now on. Uh, and these account for about 13% of UK employment. Now, how we got here is a little bit more complicated. Um, we took a US-based US system for classifying occupations according to the greenness of their tasks. We then translated that to the UK's occupational classification system. It's worth saying it's not a perfect translation. The US occupations are far more granular than the UK ones are. And there's also a risk that they're a little bit dated because that sort of green task classification hasn't been updated since 2010. But anyway, what do we find? So one of the things we wanted to do was just set out core differences between brown and green jobs to help policymakers think about how change might occur for each. And it's worth saying that we tend to find green jobs tend to be concentrated mostly among male workers, white workers, highly qualified workers, and also highly paid workers. Um, brown jobs also tend to be concentrated among men. So for example, 7% of men are in a brown job compared to just 1% of women. But we see differences, obviously, in terms of qualifications that they have. So for example, 4% of people overall are in a brown job, but 7% of people with no formal qualifications are in a brown job. And that tends to translate into pay with brown job workers being slightly more concentrated towards the mid and lower levels of the pay distribution. Um, on geography, you know, no real surprise here. London and the southeast tend to see the highest concentration of green jobs, with the notable exception of Malton in Yorkshire, where one in five workers is in a green job. 
Um, when it comes to brown jobs, we see the highest level of concentrations in particular pockets around the whole of the UK. So for example, 16% of workers in Bowery and Furness are in a green job, or sorry, a brown job, um, about 10% in Newport, 9% in Aberdeen. And finally, it's just worth touching on the fact that when we think about brown and green jobs as a whole, we tend to see that they have different sort of skills requirements. They perform different types of tasks. And what that means here is that workers in green jobs are far more likely to be focused on tasks that require non-routine personal and non-routine analytical skills, where workers in brown jobs on average are ten tend to be focused on uh, non-routine physical and routine manual type skills. Now, there hasn't been too much change in the proportion of employment in green or in brown jobs over the past decade. The share of workers in a green job grew by just over a percentage point in the last 10 years. The share of workers in a brown job held relatively flat at about 4%. Um, but we know that with the UK's 2019 commitment to meet net zero carbon emissions by 2050, a lot of that has to change. And there's been a lot of really useful reports setting out um, job targets and setting out the number of people that we will need to move into new sort of green occupations in order for us to meet um, that 2050 goal. Now it's worth saying these are really, really big increases in numbers, especially given the starting point, and some of them are probably more plausible than others. But for example, um, we would need about another additional 26,000 workers in the offshore wind industry by 2026 an additional 60,000 heat pump installers by the end of the decade, and roughly 260,000 more workers in energy by 2050. So as of now, what do workers who move into green jobs tend to look like? I'll just kick off by saying, on average, they're not necessarily your sort of young college and university leavers. This chart shows uh, characteristics among workers in non-green jobs in red, and characteristics of uh, workers who move into green jobs in blue. And the main takeaway here is just that people moving into green jobs tend to be highly qualified on average. More than half of them have some level of university qualification. And they're more likely to be sort of middle-aged workers. There's very few 16 to 24-year-olds moving into these types of roles. Now, we have, over the past decade, seen an increase in the share of brown job workers moving into green jobs, but it's worth saying it's really, really small overall. So about 3% of brown job workers, who as a reminder represent 4% of the current labor market, uh, moved, or the current employment, moved into a brown job in 2019. And the main takeaway here is those types of brown job workers who are able to transition into a green job tend to be a very specific subset of people. They're overwhelmingly likely to have higher level qualifications. About three out of four have some form of university qualification. And the task-based analysis, um, which you can read more about in our report, shows that actually the types of brown jobs that they're moving from tend to really look like the green jobs that they're moving into. Um, so for example, those brown job movers really do tend to come from you know, occupations that require personal and analytical skills rather than your sort of routine manual skills. Um, and obviously there will be exceptions to the rule here. These are just averages, but it is just worth saying that we can expect natural transitions um, to fill all of the desired green job growth that we have coming. So what does this mean for policymakers? So I think one, you know, policymakers need to be alive to the risk that we will see some demand and decline. 
Um, we also know that they need to assist firms and workers adapt to new tasks and technologies as a result of moving to net zero. And I think this is what we really want to emphasize as the key one. This is what our report shows the biggest types of change will occur in. But thirdly, we also know that we need to skill up workers for those sort of newly growing and newly evolving green occupations. So what does this mean? On the first challenge, you know, we could do worse than look to the past. There is a whole host of case studies, if not a whole you know, industry of academia, looking at what went right and what went wrong, transitioning areas out of industries like coal mining in the past. And I think you come down to a few things, you know, really close coordination between national and local governments, significant skills investment, um, and a focus on good quality job growth. I'm sure I'm making that sound much easier than it has been in reality. Um, second, targeted workforce training programs can help firms and workers adapt to new tech and indeed adapt to new tasks. So what does this mean? So kind of helping firms to be able to access new technology, but also working you know, in terms of technology transfer so that they know how to use it and encouraging them to be able to train up their workers effectively. And then thirdly, we know that when it comes to bringing new workers into these growing demand, there is, as ever, a continued need for close coordination between firms, business firms, educators, and government, both at the national and local level. And I think this is probably um, a really good example of where we could be harnessing the power of apprenticeships. Um, so wrapping up, the net zero transition is going to cause a lot of change, just maybe not the change that some of us were previously afraid of. It represents a big opportunity, so now is the time to start thinking, to start investing, and to start skilling. That's it for me. Great. Thank you very much, Kathleen. Very good. Um, it's always a good idea to remind everyone that not everything is about reliving the 1980s, even if that was the best time of your youth and all the rest. Right. Darren, over to you. Well, Torsten, uh, Kathleen, thanks for that. Uh, the, uh, the presentation left me with three kind of major points. Uh, first, this is something we've just started to look at on the Base Select Committee uh, around the structure and transition of the UK labour market. Uh, do we have enough people with the right skills in the right places to do all the right jobs? Uh, in short, I think the answer is no. Uh, and what we're currently looking at is what are the solutions to that? What are the key uh, priorities where we think there should be government intervention? Uh, or government support. And some of the numbers that we've seen there around heat pump installers uh, or wind turbine engineers or whatever it might be, um, is there that flexibility within the UK labour market as it stands in order to meet that demand? Um, uh, probably, probably not. Um, we will also be looking at what does this mean for older workers? We're an ageing society, but older workers tend to struggle to get um, rehired into new types of jobs if they're leading jobs or sectors they've been in for a long time especially where there might be kind of qualification discrimination so if you didn't do a levels because of your age sometimes you get automatically kind of kicked out of a recruitment process so i think there's an interesting discussion about how we uh, reskill and reapply older workers in the in the workforce um, the second thing is, if you look at the kind of net zero transition requirements for the country, the three big ones are heat decarbonisation, transport decarbonisation and industrial decarbonisation. On heat, uh, and by the way, I think we should include cooling in that increasingly, uh, we've already seen some of the numbers there. These types of jobs, um, if you're filling cavity walls or putting kind of insulation in the loft or changing your windows, um, or some more of the technical jobs around maybe uh, uh, installing a heat pump uh, or maybe possibly changing your boiler to a hydrogen-ready uh, boiler. There is an existing workforce there of people who can do lots of that. I don't think the size is the right size for the, the, the amount of work that we have, but there is a key group of workers who could be, with some intervention on skills, 
uh, and trading start to transition uh, into that space. Um, that, that can be done by some of the bigger businesses. It's very difficult when a lot of that industry is small, um, uh, kind of one man in his white van or maybe a couple of others. So how do we help those really small micro businesses who underpin a lot of that sector have access to the support and training needed to be able to take advantage of those uh, opportunities? Um, on transport decarbonisation, um, I mean, we were saying this just before, I don't want to steal your line without giving you credit, but if you, this wasn't you, Torsten, sorry, I think this was Kathy. Phew, um, go ahead. But you know, if, you, if you drive a car with a combustible engine and drive a car with an electric battery, you're kind of just driving a car, right? So um, uh, the hope is, is that for many workers in logistics, um, uh, that it will be the technology that changes, but not necessarily the skill set that's changing. Clearly, there's an R&D and an infrastructure um, case there that needs to be solved. But you know, in my constituency, I have 7,000, seven and a half thousand people working in logistics. Um, and some of them might have to start learning fancy things like drones maybe by 2030. But in the meantime, it's probably going to be electric vehicles to get you in and out of our clean air zone in Bristol, possibly at some point, you know, driving a, and charging up a hydrogen or filling up a hydrogen truck as opposed to a diesel truck. But you can see how there's not gonna be a huge amount of change on the front line of transport decarbonization. And then industrial decarbonisation is a really interesting one because, of course, there are a whole number of subset industries under industrial decarbonisation. But when I visit steel plants and they say, look, here's my blast furnace, got all these guys that do this, um, I'm still going to need these guys to do it with some hydrogen, probably, or maybe an electric arc furnace. Uh, when I visited a, an oil processing site in Aberdeen uh, to look at carbon capture storage, it was the same guys who maintained the same pipes. It's just they're putting something in that direction as opposed to that direction. Uh, and so there are sectors where I think the evidence you've put forward in the report here um, have very clear evidence that actually this is about transition. And so the final point I'll just make is then, OK, if you look at those two, two major points that I've just mentioned there, what role is there for government? Can you just allow the market to adjust and respond uh, to changing demand and changing requirements? Or is there an intervention needed from government? And I think the big debate is going to be around skills and training, not least because the economy is stagnating, possibly going into recession. Businesses tend to cut back on their training budgets uh, in those circumstances at a time when probably we need to accelerate training budgets, not decelerate them. Uh, and I think there will inevitably government will have to do much more, uh, not just at apprentices, apprenticeship levels, but uh, expansion of further education and their capacity to work with businesses, the role of the Open University and others for people who are in work, how we look at things like skills budgets in the workforce so that might travel with you between businesses, as well as incentivizing business investment in skills. And I think as long as we get that right, the net zero transition could be a positive opportunity for the economy, the climate and for workers. Very good, suspiciously perky at the end there. Thank you very much, Darren. The, um, right, so we all spend our time doing this like policy slash analysis chit chat. Some people are running large corporates. Go on then, Rian. How's it? How smooth is it all going to be? Well, I'm not actually running it, but oh, let right, me give you. Let me give you. The hopefully, national, somebody in the building with you is. <laughs> otherwise, we're all stuffed. I assure you, there are. Okay, they are there. Okay. So, um, really pleased to be here and talking about um, green jobs, and it's really good to have um, this report out. Um, and particularly not falling into the trap of either or and thinking that there's decline, but actually I think it's sort of transition rather than decline. Um, so for those of you who are not aware, National Grid's an energy company. Everybody's heard of us, but not everybody knows what we always do. Uh, so we own and operate the electricity transmission network um, in England and Wales. So we're like the sort of um, electricity motor work. 
And then we've recently purchased, um, uh, we distribute, uh, purchased Western Power Distribution. So we're responsible for actually getting the electricity in people's homes in the Midlands, Southwest and Wales. So it gives us a really interesting position at the heart of um, the energy system, helping to keep the lights on, but also making sure people can go about their lives and then um, managing the transition to net zero. So I wanted to do a couple of things, talk a little bit about the relationship between business and government, um, and then also talk about what it is that businesses can do. Um, so I think uh, in the debate around skills and net zero jobs, it is really easy to fixate on uh, the role of government and overlook the role of the private sector. So I thought what I'd do first of all is talk about some of the jobs. You mentioned the Kathleen in your presentation. You had 260,000. We actually thought it was more like 400,000 by 2050, and it'd be about 120,000 in, in the 2020s. Um, and we need these jobs, because if we don't have those jobs and fill those spaces, we're not going to get to net zero. So there's a sort of, there's a real derive and a demand to have these in the energy sector. And what we found in our research and numbers is that jobs don't just exist actually in the southeast; they exist right across the country. So it is a, I think it is an opportunity to redistribute um, and sort of um, play into the levelling up agenda um, and tackle some of the regional regional inequalities. Um, but so, so for example, you might get um, hubs appearing. So you might have um, CCUS in Humber. You might have a hub um, in the same area around. Um, uh, um, offshore wind, you might have a sort of industrial cluster in South Wales, so they're spread well beyond uh, London and the South East. But what we see in the energy sector is to unlock these jobs, you need to have the investment in the technologies because that will create the pull uh, for offshore wind, for uh, promoting electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging. And the one, and you touched on it Darren a bit, the one technology that I always think about in this space is um, carbon capture utilisation and storage or CCUS. Um, I think it's a really important clean technology because it doesn't just create some new jobs, but actually allows us to tra transition jobs in um, some of our more um, industrialised areas. Um, it's a technology that um, allows us to capture CO2 emissions. We then, uh, from um, power generation or from industrial processes, where it's not going to be so possible to go to hydrogen um, or electrification. We then capture it, transport it by um, pipeline, ship, rail or truck, and then put it somewhere permanently to store it, usually in the seabed. Um, and we are involved in um, the East Coast cluster, which is um, a combination of Teesside and Humberside. Um, and we're involved in the storage and transportation. Um, and we've been uh, successful in being one of the government's um, uh, clusters to be uh, uh, selected for some of the funding. But we think that it's important because you'll in this cluster you'll be able to capture about 50% of the UK's industrial emissions, but we also think you'll be able to um, have an average of 250,000 jobs a year. And again, those, those, some of them will be new, but a lot of them will be jobs that um, people maybe continue doing what they've been doing, or they transition the technologies and what they're doing in the plants and use the new sort of um, cleaner technologies. Um, and I think then it gives you a sense of the sort of opportunities um, in the economy and beyond the southeast. Um, but what we'll need, though, from government is an understanding of how they can support us with these first-of-a-kind technologies. So what are, how do we work with the government to get the right business models in place that allow us to make those investments that pull those jobs through and give us the confidence? So that's the bit where I think there's a role for government is ensuring the investment and then we can help create the jobs. And we've had lots of 
good interventions from governments in terms of the 10-point plan, the energy white paper, um, the recent British energy security strategy. But there's probably more we need, and particularly on CCOS, there's probably more we need in the energy bill. There's a bit more we probably need on offshore wind. Um, and uh, particularly, this, some of this will also come down to planning. So then let me just go to the second point really quickly is about um, the role of the private sector, because I think it's really easy to have a conversation, a policy conversation about what should government do and what do we want from government. And it's often easy to forget what it is that employers can be doing in this space. Um, and so and I think that it's also really important, particularly in an industry like energy, to think about diversity. We probably do typically in the, typically in the past have employed more males, but I think the truth is if we're going to get to net zero, if we're going to bring 400,000 jobs into the sector, we just can't keep um, employing from the same pools of employment we've been doing in the past, that we need to basically spread much further. We need to be talk bringing people into the sector who probably haven't considered jobs in the energy sector and will bring fresh thinking, fresh innovation, all of which we need to get to net zero. So we need to attract people who haven't thought about it so far. And that does include women, it includes people from minority ethnic backgrounds, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds to bring in those fresh ideas and fresh ideas and thinking. And so what we've been doing at GRID then is playing our part in that and setting ourselves targets for pulling through more diverse candidates into our apprenticeship programmes, our graduate programmes, setting ourselves targets for pulling through more diverse talent into our senior leadership team. And I think that's one way of businesses playing their role, but it's probably not quite enough. Um, so we've also been um, working with schools, with local communities, particularly where we have big infrastructure projects. So show people what jobs look like and it isn't just STEM I think I, I, I think that doesn't sound um, very interesting particularly to young people but I think green jobs net zero does we've been trying to change the language to make it really interesting to come into the sector and we've established um, a community investment scheme called grid for good where we deliberately go into lower socioeconomic backgrounds communities we try and encourage school children to come into national grid we give them some a work experience uh, we we um, put, sort of put them through a 12-week programme. We do this in the UK and the US. Um, and the, the point, the reason I wanted to say that is just to go back to this. I think employers have a huge responsibility in this and there's things that we can all do in our businesses that will encourage uh, people into sectors that they haven't normally thought about. Uh, so I'm just going to finish there, but saying I think lots of opportunity. There are things that government can do to help with this. I think there's also a lot that employers can do to, to, to ease this transition as well. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Right. We've got a lot of stuff to get our teeth into. As I said at the beginning, you can go on to slide and put questions there. It's hashtag net zero jobs. Those of you in the room can use your hands um, and your mouths then to ask the question. But hands first. That's the ordering. The, um, so look, I thought we'd let, let's because there's a slight danger of everyone agreeing a bit too much, which is always suspicious in uh, some of these spaces. So let, let's start on the on this big picture of the, the nature of what the green transition means for the labour market. So as Kathleen was saying out earlier, the big argument here is the tendency is to think about it as kind of shutting down parts of our industrial structure to deliver, to decarbonise, and maybe then to create some jobs over here. And then the discussion about a just transition tends to involve complicated, possibly state-led plans to move people from here to here. Given that you've all basically broadly agreed that that isn't a good way to think about the net zero transition, why is that the dominant way of thinking about it for 
public policy debates, at least in the kind of hypothetical phase. We're slightly, we're slightly on the edge now of moving from the hypothetical phase of the net zero transition to actually doing something. But Dan, why, what, what's driving that? I'm not sure I agree with the premise of the question necessarily. Yeah. Typical politician. So I, 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 I'll disagree with you if that's all right. Okay. All right go. I, mean, I think my observation of government, and it's interesting around this business point, uh, because government tends to publish a policy paper or a strategy and say, okay, the market will just deliver it. Uh, and when the select committee comes in and says, actually, we think there might be a little bit here that government ought to do to help business or some types of businesses, they generally say no. And they say, no, no, no the market knows what we've sent the policy signal off. off so give us an example off you for, your, for your frustrated conversation. Uh, so we did a report on heat decarbonisation, um, on manufacturing of heat pumps, on skills transition for workers from gas boilers. As I said, the, the example I gave earlier, the kind of small, not centrica, but like you know, the guy in his van that kind of goes around okay. doing it. How do we help him get his people trained yeah. into doing heat pumps? We think, like in Ireland, uh, there should be some kind of training centres supported by industry and government together. Uh, and they said, uh, they said, they said no. Um, and so actually, I think there is a space where government could be uh, slightly more involved, not in the way that you've suggested with state-led plonking yeah. of workers from one sector to the other. And actually, I think they step back from that, not not into it. Okay, all right. Graham, what do you think? Well, I, 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 sort of, I sort of also disagree that there's this sense <laughs> that it has to be the state basically moving people from one area to another. And the, the, the evidence I'd have for that is I sat on the government's Green Jobs Task Force. Um, so there was industry, that it was um, led by Bayes and Department of Energy, uh, Education. Um, it had academics, local, in, local sort of government. It had um, NGOs and trade unions. And none of us saw it that way. Actually, what was, to your point, I'm afraid, yeah. we all kind of agreed. And we all even agreed to the sorts of things that, it, that need to get done in order to enable this. The yep. challenge is, is, is getting, it, getting it to happen. Okay, all right, all right. I can't see that you, we, we try and get... I'm, I mean, if you, if you look at um, reports that are published in this space, obviously not from excellent places like us or the LSE, but they do tend to say, big danger, loads of jobs to go in industrial heartlands, it could all be very scary if the word steel gets thrown around. There is a key point here, actually, around um, a kind of investment chronology risk. That's a portrait of words, but let me explain what I mean. If you can't get the businesses to invest, and you mentioned this, in the technologies uh, so that the people who currently have jobs have new jobs to go to in the right time frame, then you do have a massive problem. And so, you know, example, we went to Port Talbot in South Wales. Um, their blast furnaces have been there since, well, I think, the 80s, maybe earlier. They need to make a huge investment decision. And they said, they said to me, look, we could do electric power furnaces, but you can't actually make brand new steel from that. It's just recycling steel. We think hydrogen might be a thing, but we're not really sure about that yet. And government tells us about carbon capture and storage, but the public infrastructure isn't there to take it away from us and put it anywhere. And we've got to make this decision in the next year. Yep. What are you going to do? Another example I mentioned earlier, Honda in Swindon. There were some broader issues as to why they left, but they made engines for combustible um, uh, combustion engines for cars. They wanted to make the kit for electric cars. They couldn't find um, uh, training providers to work with their apprentices, with the relevant teaching staff, to be able to train their apprentices on battery production. And they couldn't get the supply chain in the area to produce the kit they needed to come into their just-in-time manufacturing. They've left now, and they've gone somewhere else in the world. So there is a risk that if you get the timing wrong here, big chunks of heavy multinational industry could, could be lost. That's a, that's a key danger. That is definitely, uh, that's definitely a danger. Okay, right. Here's like one potential answer, given that you're refusing to answer my question, and Kathleen can take this, which is, um, uh, and there's a great, there's a question, here we go. 
an anonymous question online, which we'll bring up here, which is basically, it is weird, isn't it? This entire discussion is about men. Yeah. It's like staggering. Like it, all of the brown jobs are done by men, more or less, despite your excellent diversity schemes, I'm sure they're not going very well. In general, I thought your ones are going brilliantly. All right, but it's like seven times as many men as it is women. It's yeah. like almost on the brown jobs front, on the, even on the green jobs yeah. front, which are, gradu which are done by people with degrees, which by the way, are like more women than men amongst the younger yeah. cohorts coming through. But even then, it's male heavy. Why we all, it's, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just hearkening back for a second to your earlier point about fears about deindustrialization and sort of going back to the past. When I actually looked at the stats, I was like, oh gosh, it does kind of look like what I imagined things to look like in the past in terms of huge concentrations of both green and brown jobs among men. Now, I think part of this and brown jobs we kind of understand where that comes from because as brown jobs exist today they tend to still be in some of those sort of industrial sectors that have long been uh, male heavy now i think one thing is probably i didn't do a good enough job setting out my presentation i should say today is when we talk about green jobs we're talking about the gamut so we're talking about you know really intensive sort of stem based workers up to people who are sales managers and marketing managers who have some sort of green task in their portfolio, right? And so even then, it's weird that it's still a, such a huge share of men. Um, I think some of it probably just does come down to the education and training system. So one of the things that I find really dispiriting is actually when you look at who does apprenticeships in STEM right now, the gender split is even worse than it is in the wider workforce. So, um, so I don't have a really good answer apart from saying path dependency. And um, I think we need to, you know, see more of these sort of initiatives, you know, access initiatives, because just on the number of people, I'm sure there's great examples, but on the big picture figures and the number of people coming through the education system right now, we're not yet making that huge leap to fix things by the next couple of decades. Very good. Right, let's bring up the first poll, the, um, which is your go, and I'm going to ask the panel for version of this while people are voting. But but how do you think we should think about the green jobs revolution, which maybe overdoing? You don't I don't want to get into a semantic de debate with you about the word revolution, not least because you can't because it's on Slido. But like change, all right? Is it about job destroying deindustrialization? These guys say no. Uh, so do we. Uh, is it more like the ICT revolution, which, although it did reduce the scale of some occupations, the main effect is everybody had to use computers in their day jobs. It's why you've seen stress levels go up amongst low-paid workers, by the way, because they were to use computers these days. Um, uh, is it just totally different to any of that we've seen, or should we all pipe down, stop talking about it, it's not a revolution, it'll be fine. Let's all have a nice snooze, we'll see you in 2050, and everything will be fine. So have a vote on uh, that. Rian, what do you reckon? I probably would go, I'd, I'd, I think I'd probably say it's evolution, not revolution, but you've ruled that out. So I'm going for number two, okay. but partly because um, I think what we see in our, in our business actually is that it's not that we're changing, we're changing the way people do their jobs and it's partly actually digital change. Mm -hmm. and, and so then we're sort of, um, people are having to learn to do their jobs in new ways. And I think that was your description of the ICT. Is, yeah, exactly. Darren? I'm afraid there's more agreement. I'm sorry to be dull <laughs> about it. I mean, I, mean I, I agree that it's number, number two, primarily because if you think about kind of, we use the word industrial strategy around here, maybe that's not the right phrase, but the kind of major economic policy direction of travel for the economy 
obviously technology has been that for a while now. Net zero is going to be it next. And it's, I think, therefore, there are parallels and it's going to affect most, well, it's going to affect everybody in their homes and many, many people in their, in their jobs. So I, I tend to think it's probably number two as well. Very good. OK, right. Let's bring up the results from what you lot watching at home or in the room are voting for. God, look, OK, I'm going to definitely try to work harder to get around going. This is uh, OK, very good. Right. OK, that gives us a clear consensus. So that will move us on, given that you've all rejected the premise of every single question ever. Then, um, OK, let's try a harder one, OK, which is um, so Kathleen showed a great chart of um, not a chart, sorry, text about the claims that are made about new green jobs by some people and places. We're going to touch on this as well in some sectors. Right. The, um, uh, let's just focus on one of the really concrete ones that we, the government has a, it's probably got a firmer plan, at least in kind of drawing a line on a chart for what's meant to happen. So let's do heat pump installation, okay? Right. The, um, uh, so no, let's not do no, let's not let's do let's do home insulation. The prior stage to heat pump insulation, we need well insulated homes. Okay, the um, uh, the scale of what is meant to happen in the twenty twenties is huge, reflecting a number of things. One, our housing stocks are disaster when it comes to energy efficiency. Two, the last decade we didn't do any of it, so we've got lots to get done. Three, we need to have done quite a lot before we put the heat pumps in broadly. And if we don't get them done now, then we can't get the heat pumps in time to have done it all by 2050 without having to put, rip out a load of boilers, which is really expensive. Uh, and the economists will get upset about uh, stranded capital, so will we. So we need to do lots, all right? It's not going to happen, is it, in the 2020s? It's just totally implausible. Like, the number of workers required uh, is huge. They don't exist. Everybody that's tried to get any energy insulation done via government policy support over the last <laughs> 10 years has found it a complete nightmare. The sector's fragmented. It's under-regulated. There's no training route in that young workers can see. Uh, we're just drawing lines on a chart. Darren. Correct. What's a bit grim. <laughs> Unless anything... We're not meant to agree. Come on. Oh, sorry. Unless something changes, you're right, because this, the, the scale of the work that's required, as you say, is enormous. It's on every street, in every village, town and city across the whole country, we don't have a market infrastructure uh, from the private sector to meet that need. We don't have a public sector infrastructure to meet that need. Uh, the supply chains are not fully geared up to being able to deliver that scale of work. And even for people who uh, want to do this and can afford to do it now, they struggle to, to, to do it. And so, yes, there's a policy debate about how do you um, probably do it for free for a lot of people. Um, how do you Who's your priority for the free? Given that I know you're not, unless you're a very big spender, we're not going to do all of this. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I think there are uh, the definition of fuel poverty is is not helpful, but that tends to be where Whitehall focuses its, its attention. Interestingly, there is a, a, a subset of people who have homes that will be very expensive to retrofit who are in fuel poverty, but actually probably have higher levels of income. And there is, a, I think, a legitimate question. So how do you help people if they've got a really expensive property to retrofit, if you've got no cover T-walls or whatever? You want to be, you want to be nice to the like, drafty Somerset farmhouse? Yes. Because they need to do their work in the end that's, as that's, well. That's some of these Southwest MPs, you see, that's where you end up. <laughs> it's always the Somerset farmhouse at the end. Yeah, you definitely see huge variation in energy usage based on if your wall was put up in the 15th century. Exactly. So there's a product design question there for, for Whitehall, which, as you've alluded to, it's, they've been hopeless at recently. Um, but in terms of the, 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 the jobs question, I don't think we will get there unless government says this is 
a national priority, we have to work with businesses, small and large, to do a national rollout street by street across the entire country. And government will lean in to help ensure the supply chain jobs and financing to do that. Ren? On that final point, I mean, I don't have so much to say about heat pump installers. I've probably done less work on it. But on your final point, it has long been an ask of industry that energy efficiency becomes a sort of national infrastructure priority in the same way that you might say um, the build of HS2 or, you know, think of big infrastructure projects or rolling out eight nuclear power stations. That energy efficiency should, One have, a year. One should, a year, have, should, have, should have equal weighting. And it's, yeah. we've never quite managed to get that. And I think you're right. Until we get to that sense of order, uh, magnitude of order, then we're not going to get the change in the housing stock that we need that will preempt the technologies that will uh, Very good. support us in the future. Okay, let's take a, a question from online and a question for you, Kathleen, on the same theme, which is basically coming up here. So the um, okay, which is basically on one side. So you get some people worried about brown jobs, although you've all now totally rejected that there's any risk to anyone unless we have an investment gap, which is definitely real. The um, another way of coming, some people say the green jobs revolution is the answer to the UK's lack of an economic strategy in the 2020s. It's going to create loads of really brilliant new jobs. Um, uh, and so if we just do that, we don't need to worry about Britain's low productivity, uh, our regional gaps and all the rest. So let's just get on with it. Um, uh, as discussed, the, is, is it plausible that the scale of job creation slash the nature of job creation solves all our problems or not? No, it's not, it, it, the, the scale that we need to meet is impressive, but it won't be a, a big enough share of employment to you know, drastically uh, uh, change the UK's economy. Um, and also, you know, whilst we, you know, one of the good things is that a lot of these green jobs will be spread throughout different parts of the country, it's not going to be enough to lift everyone up. Um, you know, other big things certainly matter, job quality uh, being one of them. And yes, so good, but not sufficient. I think there is one thing, this relates to some of this like market versus state versus like planning side of it, which is at one level, this transition is unusual in the sense that because we have clearly defined tasks that need doing as collectively as a country, we do kind of have more sense than normal that we're definitely going to need more people in certain mm -hmm. jobs. So we discussed some of them here. Um, the home insulation challenge is a big one, even if the Scale scale up required looks deeply implausible as we currently um, as we currently uh, stand. The, um, um, but there are lots of others where we just don't have the same level of like granular certainty about where. But but on but on the ones we do. So the two things I always remind people of is so predictions of long term labour market change tend to be dodgy, basically not very successful in general. Okay. But there's some areas where we do have more certainty. So I'll give you an example. So in the 2010s, we've got this huge employment growth, lots of uh, jobs miracle talk around the country. The jobs growth is basically, the, amongst the reasons it's female heavy or not the only one, was because it's basically in health and care jobs or professional managerial jobs in places that tend to be have a higher proportion of women than men, right? They're the two big things. There's, there's lots of jobs in crazy everywhere, but those are the two big ones. Everything else is quite small, basically. Some sectors are shrinking. On the health and care thing, that's going to happen again during the 2020s. That's, that's basically telling you something fundamental about what we want to consume as a society. Health as we become an older country, social care plus the NHS plus growing private health. 
um, sector. So that's probably going to happen again. If you're thinking about the level of the labour market as a whole, you probably want to think about how to make sure more of those are good jobs. We're about to get a load of public sector strikes for the next year as a result. In this world, the, the moving of labour into basically construction-related tasks, buildings efficiency, is the most obvious one and is the opposite, is male-heavy. Um, so are you sure you shouldn't be a bit more Stalinist in how it actually happens? Because we shouldn't feel confident about lots of things, but this thing is either going to happen with a lot of speeding up and state support or it's not going to happen at all, basically. And it's good jobs everywhere. I'm trying to make the case for the climate campaigners that were being disparaged well, by the last question. So I was going to go, actually, in, in answer to that question, I was going yep. to go a slightly different route. So there maybe is a risk that we overplay green jobs, and I totally agree with Kathleen, it's not the answer to everything, but it will fill some of the gap. But the other, I, I think the what's often talked about is either the fact that the, we're going to lose jobs or it's going to cost a lot and it's going to and we and do we need to pay for the cost so i think the argument is is it really costly and the reason i think green jobs is helpful in that is because um there are upsides so it, it probably will cost us all some more but there are upsides and we can create opportunities and when we do research um about how some of the new infrastructure might impact people people um, except there might be impacts, but what they want to know is there's an opportunity for everybody. So they actually want to know, it's fine, I know we've got to build some more nuclear power stations or some, in our case, some more transmission lines, but are we going to get something for it? Are we going to get some jobs? And don't interestingly... They use, they use stronger words than that. I, I, I can, I'll take that <laughs> offline. But uh, interestingly, they also say we, we don't necessarily mind if it's not exactly here, but we want to know everybody's going to somehow benefit. And I think that's one of the reasons why green jobs is a useful okay. way of talking about net, net zero and the transition because it's not, a, it's not, otherwise you risk having this conversation, is it always negative? Okay. Darren, if we're not going to shrink the brown jobs and we do need to grow the green jobs in some areas, what are we going to do less of? Because I often think like from an economist perspective, right, the green transition is neither going to tank the size of GDP, as per some of the fears you're talking about, nor is it going to increase the size of GDP, really. We're just moving a load of consumption into investment within the broad. We're just doing different activities because we're deciding this is what matters and this is what we want to use our productive capacity for. So what are we going to shrink? It's a great question. Um, and this is part of why I wanted to do this inquiry on the Select Committee, because I, 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 don't, I don't actually know the answer at the moment. I have some kind of early observations, but I don't think we have enough people to do all the jobs that we need to do. And so either you get people from outside the country to come and help us do them, but we know what the policy debate is on that space, and obviously we've done a freedom of movement. Plus those people bring demand with them as well as supply. Exactly, but uh, the question is how much of what type of immigration do you want to come in and how does mm -hmm. that underpin your immigration policy? Um, I've talked a little already about the kind of ageing population and older workers and how you make sure that they continue to be um, economically active if they're fit and able and willing to do so, uh, increasingly for longer because the pension age has been increased. Um, uh, but also I think there's a really interesting question about, and this is why I think there's more of a role for government here, but about transition within the economy. So our, a lot, I might be a bit controversial here, I don't think some of our public services are currently affordable in the long run. 
So you have to reduce the cost of running public services. I think you do that through a lot more automation and technology. That means fewer workers in some of our public sector jobs. So if you're going to reduce the size of the public sector workforce, you need to put them somewhere and give them something to do. Uh, and I think this is another huge public policy priority, and therefore government should be part of that flow of workers from maybe some jobs where we need to reduce the size of the workforce into other sectors where we need to increase the size of the workforce. Right. We can tell you're not on the front bench. Well, exactly. <laughs> no, these uh, these exactly. cunning plans. Uh, right, Kathleen, why don't you take us on a different route here, and then I'm going to move us on to some of these policy answers about how we actually what we, what do we actually do. But the um, but there's a great question here, which is getting at. So we've talked about numbers to a degree, right? And we've talked about slightly different kinds of jobs. But what about quality mm. of uh, jobs? So this question is slightly focused on levels of unionisation, better pay levels. And you did on your green brown split, you did give us. Which were the well-paid jobs? Green jobs. Okay, so you're not yeah. worried about that aspect of quality. The unionisation thing is true amongst where some of the brown risk is yeah. the remaining industrial structures. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess, I, I, I guess as ever, this conversation really comes down to specifics. Um, so I'm just going to throw out a, a random example of, of a brown job that we identified here. I'm not sort of, you know, welders and then on the other hand we have precision instrument makers now i don't have to hand the unionization rates uh in either of those what? jobs but what i would suggest is that some of them might find you know some of them might find it easier and more natural and have the support to make that transition into a green way of doing things so for example uh, instrument makers using new technology and i think there you're what you're not going to see is someone moving from sort of a uh, mid-level mid pay occupation to a low-paid occupation, you're probably going to see them moving from a similar occupation uh, pay level to another similar occupation pay level. And I think that's kind of what we got at in the report when we look at the transitions, like who so far has made these transitions, and it just tends to be specific subset of people's moving to really similar jobs. It's just that specific tasks and technologies they use are you know, green versus brown. The, um, and we should reiterate what Kathleen said earlier, like the numbers of people actually going from a green ground to, they're just like minute numbers. Yes. At, the labor market, at the level of the labor market as a whole, yeah. they, they're not material yeah. uh, in any way. The, um, so it's more what happens to the people who are staying put as much as the people who are uh, moving. Now, let's just do one question on uh, cost of living. So Piers here has a question. Uh, so Darren, so the cost of living crisis is the story of 2022. Uh, it's looking increasingly like it's the story of 2023 uh, as well. The scale of it, the level of shrinking in incomes being comparable to what we see in a big recession means that that is what we're going to be talking about. Uh, so have we basically put back any real progress on the cost of living, including the expensive business of sorting out our housing stock uh, until the back half of this decade? Look, it makes it much more difficult, but I don't think it should be relegating it because, you know, the thing with the with the climate crisis is is that you know nature doesn't flow in economic cycles. So the, what? The, uh, I hate to break it to you, you know, but you had to the investment case um, for having to get this done in the timescales that we've committed ourselves to remains solid, even though the economic um, situation is is changing. And so we just have to find a way for that to work. I think what's implicit in the question is that some countries will find it harder to go as quickly as they need to on some of these issues. And that will probably be the case for the UK as well. We have a very reluctant treasury on investment in net zero in this country, even though other departments are less reluctant. Although we've got the highest 
highest public sector investment since the 1970s. High inflation plus high public investment since the 70s. Great. Uh, but if you ever ask the Treasury to tell you anything about net zero investment, it seems to be an uphill struggle, uh, would be my observation. Okay. Um, uh, so I think it will slow it down, and I think it will make it harder for governments to make decisions in the right timescales. But my caution would be, uh, as I've alluded to, we've still got to hit our targets on time because we know from the science what happens if we don't. The, uh, we're on, well, I was going to make a, a, a twist on it, which is we're now currently, so the Prime Minister's out being like a nuclear power station a year, as you, discussed, as you mentioned earlier. <laughs> to be fair to the government, including the business department, they're very focused on, okay, the cost of carbon means we need to go further on the, on the energy generation. The bit we were already doing okay on, on the net zero transition, the electricity generation business, they want to go further and faster on the decarbonisation. They... Um, in the small print of that, in terms of how it happens, it says largely bill payers will pay, right? Although no one says that in public, they just say a nuclear power station a year. But it basically hints that that. It hasn't, they haven't said absolutely certainly, but the Treasury definitely doesn't want to do it via public sector investment. Uh, the private sector won't deliver it without some form of support. We're basically talking about people paying on their bills. Isn't that the, are we sure that when the public works out that that's the way they get the net zero transition, they can become a lot less keen. And we don't, separately, when we get a nuclear power station a year. So, um, linked to the la link linking all this together, yeah. I think there is a focus on cost of living, but I think with the situation in Ukraine, there's also equally a cost on energy security. And I think that is helpful because I think what we haven't seen is, yes, we're going to go, and in the UK at least, I think what that does is people say we need energy resilience and therefore we're going to look for more offshore wind actually and more homegrown energy and that has has at this point in time related to um, low carbon. So I don't I don't feel and I don't feel like the, the pressure is off, although I think in some things like homes and home insulation it's harder and you're right that the, the focus has been a bit on generation. So then your question is is it all going to go on how do we pay for it? Um, I don't think all of it goes on bills, actually. I think that um, there are... And the other thing is we've, we've done a brilliant job in offshore wind of bringing down the cost of technology. Um, and we need to do more of that. So whatever framework we put in place, it ought to be always about creating innovation and bringing down the cost of technology. Whether we... And there, there are some bits of the, the, the generation where it, it is totally private sector led and it doesn't leverage off bills but I, but i i but not nuclear well i i think on nuclear um i'm not in nuclear sector so i'm not going to comment but no. let's just say in the last sort of 10 years we've built one nuclear power station or we're I building see, we one nuclear so one power station 10 years i see okay yeah it's not going to happen is it Aaron? no i mean so the, the, the government's commitment is i think uh, on average one reactor a year over the next eight years they're baking a huge gamble on small modular reactors, SMRs, which is this kind of idea of like a mini nuclear power plant that's quicker and cheaper to get up and running and plug in. The, the only problem is we don't have any yet, so we don't really know if, if they work. Um, it also includes Hinchy. Such a gloomster. Well, I, I, I just work on the facts, Torsten. That's the problem. That's the problem but, with you, um, but, uh, but it includes Hinkley. So you've got the two at Hinkley, which are you know late and overpriced, but quite coming, large. quite large, two. Uh, you've got two at Sizewell, which looks like it's going to go on bills and get the money for that sorted. Yeah, you might get another 
one or two in Anglesey if you can get some American companies to That's pay for That's quite good. You have to stuff. six. It, it rounds to one a year. Yeah, it does. It depends on how it is. And then maybe a couple of SMRs if you're lucky. Okay. Uh, I think you've got quite perky. I mean, on the number of builds. It's similar to get, our bills are going to go out to pay for it. But, yes. Uh, uh, very good. Right. Uh, let's do a poll and move us on to the next topic, which is basically, look, what do we actually want to do about all of this and how should policymakers think about the issue? So here's the question. Look, what, and you're allowed a kind of, mm, the government shouldn't do anything much. Uh, they should leave it all to the private sector. But um, uh, how much should we focus? Obviously, this is all, you can't say all of them. I know you're going to want to say all of them. You're not allowed to. What's the most important priority? So decarbonizing jobs that are currently done, that's like either electrification or hydrogen for steel plants, or it's making sure that we can manufacture um, submarines in Barrow without using quite so much uh, carbon. Um, should we help people? Should we, should we aim to target this green transition? You want to kick them out of the public sector too, but like tra tra aiming for people to transition into green jobs specifically, or should we calm down, be good old-fashioned lib economic liberals and realise that you just need a healthy labour market and overall that is what will lead to these transitions uh, being as painless as possible? Who wants to go first? Kathleen. <laughs> um. Well, I'm going to even think about saying all three. <laughs> no, I'm going to do the first one. Um, but I think, you know, part of the process of doing the first one of decarbonizing the jobs that they already do is helping them in that transition. So making sure that they can adapt to okay. tech and Very good. tasks. So we are going to agree because I, I, I definitely don't think three, but I think one and two. You don't and I think there's probably, you talked about it earlier, there's probably a time sequencing. You probably need to do one and then from one will come two but i think you can't you do just two yeah exactly i've uh, you can't do two i think you do need targeted interventions i think the okay. challenge you described it darren is how do you how do you bring together the right interventions from government with the right push and pull yeah. from business and i don't think we've always got that right and, and and that's one of the challenges is i think we can't we're going to have to think about this in probably new ways of working together Damn. Uh, doing as I'm told, I'll just pick the first one. I think for most jobs that makes sense. Okay. On the first one. Yeah. So on. So you gave us the great example on uh, uh, Port Dalbert, which is look. I think. I think that's probably the one that has most salience in people's minds. Steel. Um, uh, possibly because it's just on the news. Even though the number of jobs, there are other areas of a high carbon economy that may have more workers in them. But it's a. Um, it's a very totemic one. Why? Why in? Kind of, so Sweden's further down the kind of hydrogen as the answer. Why, why, why are we different on that? I mean, I literally don't know the answer. This is non-pejorative. Are they wrong? Are they taking a gamble? Why are they further ahead than us on deciding they're going to make a plunge for it? Well, I think there's, there's a general point about the hydrogen strategy in the UK. It was quite late. Uh, we've not uh, established the business models to incentivise investment. Um, we've not made any decisions really yet on the investment around public infrastructure for hydrogen generation, storage, uh, and transportation. Um, you know, there's this whole debate about different colours of types of hydrogen, who should generate it, what the carbon emissions, uh, and where should they be created. So we don't actually have a, a, a market yet for hydrogen yeah. uh, production in the UK. Uh, what that has meant is that it's slowed down some of the other kind of scaled up use cases in industrial settings. We're good at R&D and we're good at all of that type of stuff in our universities. Yeah. Um, but it's not all lined up in a way to mean that we can actually get ahead of, say, say Sweden in making those decisions in the UK. I mean, the government basically, so there's, there's, there's two, so hydrogen features in two big parts of the net zero transition discussion. There's a group of futurologists who think it's the answer to the home heating challenge and think 
we should stop with this heat pump nonsense and just start pumping hydrogen through everyone's homes, right? And then there's the industrial decarbonisation where the, this seems slightly more credible. Uh, so is, the government basically doesn't think we're going to be using it for home heating, but doesn't want to absolutely say that clearly and wants to pretend for some people, maybe, maybe, maybe. And do you think that problem is stopping us making progress on the, whereas I think most people in the actual industry think there's pretty low chance of hydrogen being the answer to much of our home heating? Uh, possibly. I mean, I suppose the government has said that it will make a final decision on hydrogen heating in 2026. Yeah. Uh, Does it matter that we're waiting till 2026? Yeah. So I suppose what that means is that there's a lot of activity in the hydrogen sector and lobby kind of hoping or wanting that to be a positive answer for them. Yeah. And then maybe not putting as much energy into the industrial applications or possibly even some kind of long distance transportation options. Um, there are people obviously working in those spaces, but it does mean that I think the sector's focus is wider than perhaps it needs to be. What was the percentage chance of the government seeing a major role for hydrogen in home heating? I always get loads of letters when I talk about this. So we did an inquiry. I mean, we're not here to protect your letterbox. No, I know it is all made. We're here for the truth. You said you were no, not earlier. Exactly. So we did a report on heat decarbonisation recently. Yep. And on the basis of the evidence today, we concluded that we didn't see it as a kind of major viable option. Five? Um, uh, Five percent. Uh, uh, Four? No, something might happen that makes okay. it an easy option, but at the moment I'm particularly pessimistic about it. Uh, fine. Okay, let's bring up the uh, results. So go on your Oh, I just say I think we're a bit more positive. <laughs> I know you are. I know. <laughs> okay, no, no, well, you know, you've got some pipes that need filling. Right, let's bring up the results <laughs> of the, uh, the poll. I'm, I'm coming away from this whole session just like deeply worried. Like consensus is a really dangerous thing in public policy making. It usually leads to like absolutely catastrophic mistakes. Uh, any second now, but maybe I'm just that is me sounding like an old-fashioned liberal. Right? Okay. Well done, everyone. Um, we're going to sort out Barrow to make sure uh, that it's not a disaster. Right? Training and skills. Okay. So again, I'm going to set up another straw man that you're going to tell me is nonsense. But. Uh, Everybody wants to talk about retraining schemes that help people make transitions, right? Particularly later in life. That's the popular thing to talk about. Lifelong learning. The government had its national retraining service with the CBI and the TUC. Hasn't actually done anything. Um, but that's the thing. I think the Labour Party is also in favour of everybody retraining left, right and centre. They're, in the real world, almost nobody retrains. Okay. Uh, in the real world, um, far few people move jobs and sectors than we would probably like or definitely than they used to, despite everybody saying that everybody's moving jobs more than ever. It's not really um, true. And as we've showed in the real world, basically nobody's moving from a brown job into a green job unless they were basically the marketing. They were, unless they were in marketing for a company that was in a brown industry and they going to do marketing for a company in a green industry broadly. I'm being a bit unfair. But that's like the big picture what the evidence is telling us. So why is the public policy discussion focused on retraining rather than focusing on the fact that uh, no firms train anybody in their own workforces, obviously apart from National Grid, before you say it. But the amount of training done by British firms is a disgrace. It's been coming down consistently year after year after year. Every time I do a like, board discussion with a British company, they say to me, the problem is the youth of today come out and they haven't got the maths that we need. And I always say to them, did they have it in 1910? But no. You used to do some training and you've all stopped them. So shouldn't we just focus on saying to firms, look, we're all going to have to change what we do as part of the net zero transition. That's much broader than these big changes that everyone likes to talk about. It just requires us being doing the basics of actually training our workforce. Why have you all stopped doing it, you lazy so-and-sos? 
Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, and actually, I think the net zero debate is a subset of, of that argument uh, because it's the same issue for technology and productivity changes and lots of other bits and pieces as well. Um, but as far as I can see, there is a fundamental problem in the culture uh, and acceptance around uh, learning new things uh, and upskilling probably during work time, uh, not doing it. Just Although, as you told me, a year ago, I didn't know how to use Slido. And now you do. Now I'm frigging whizzing around there's, on this iPad there's, device. There's, there's hope for everyone. There is hope for uh, everyone. But, but the, the interesting question to which I do not know the answer, and which I hope to take some evidence on in the labour market inquiry, is why? And how do we unlock that problem? I mean, is it government having to tell employers that they must do this? Is it employers needing some incentive? Is it the fact that the training provider or skills provider kind of ecosystem can't meet well, here's, on that note here's a question from Piers basically gets directly at that here we go right uh, technical college in Surrey okay so we know we need heat pump plumbing right uh, colleges aren't getting on with tr making it happen they, um, is that basically what you mean I feel the colleges have a much larger role to play but they need help doing it. They are chronically underfunded. They can't hire the staff because they can't compete on salary. And they, a lot of them do a fantastic job trying to match their courses with local business providers. But they need to scale that up. And that requires a huge intervention from Whitehall. And I think FE has been chronically underfunded for, forever, essentially. And I think that's probably part of the answer to this issue. But you obviously need the businesses and the other employers to be able to plug into that in a very coherent way across the whole country. Can't just rely on a very good FE college in a particular area to get it right. Okay. Rin, since and it's the Jubilee, you've got a version of this question for you from the Royal Academy of Engineers. So basically the Queen is in the room. Henry wants to know, is it actually about skills more than it's about investment, basically, because British people won't, the people won't get on with the investment because they can't get the people who know how to do the thing they need to do. There was actually a great paper out last week arguing that the... Uh, Industrial Revolution happened in the north of England because people happened to have the... It wasn't because of high wages or the coal. It was people happened to have the skills to be ready to roll with that particular bit of... Manif oh, this is like ancient history. So I, I go back to what I said on... So I give CCUS as the example. Yep. We don't know what the business models are. And until we know what the business models are, it's difficult to take the final investment decision. Yep. When we get the final investment decision, we'll then say, right, we need to scale up. So, let's, okay. so, so I, 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 from what I see in my time at Grid, I think the investment has to come and the jobs will follow. But to the point of the previous conversation, um, what, are they, what are some policy solutions? Um, when we did the Green Jobs Task Force, there were two, two things we were thinking about. How do we make the apprenticeship levy more flexible yep. so that you can use it for um, modular training? so that you can retrain whilst you're at work. And then the other thing is, from an employer perspective, how do you give people the time in their day back to train? So I, I, I think there are little solutions that can help. And I also just want to push back on the, okay. nobody's doing any training. I just, you know, that the, might be the case the overall, but, um, doing any training. but um, that's not what I'm seeing at National what? Grid. Okay, but so let's, 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 let's take National Grid out and then look at the rest of the economy. Why do we think employers just year after year are doing less training, apart from National Grid, who are like the best trainer in the entire world and I will be resigning tomorrow to take up an apprenticeship? But what, for everybody else, why is it going down year after year after year? I have absolutely no idea. Maybe we just do have to like, you know, so we've got the apprenticeship levy. It's basically a compulsion training scheme. People want it extended to be available for all training, but it has to be just much bigger. 
then? Are we just moving towards like it's compulsion or no one's going to do it anymore? I mean, British firms don't invest in anything is basically the underpinning problem. I mean, our investment levels are a disgrace compared on everything. R&D, training, capital, intangibles. It's really weird. Why don't we invest anything? Apart we, from you guys. Yeah, well, I, I, yes, we are investing you 30, a lot of 35 yeah, billion in the got next five pipes, years. You've got these pipes, but like the rest of them, they're just not investing in anything. I... Just saying it's a bit odd. The, um, all, all of our productivity gap with France is explained by our British workers having less kit, to, to, less capital to work with. All of the productivity gap with France. They haven't, anyway, I think the, um, it's a big problem. The Chancellor's at least talking about this, but he's talking about things that will help you guys more. So he's talking about tax reform that will incentivise physical investment, because that's the bit of investment that tax finds it easier to incentivise. So that'll be good for you guys. BT will like it for their digging up the roads campaign. But it's not much use for investment that is in intangibles or basically anything else. We've got to sort this, guys. I don't know what the answer is. Someone needs to find an investment and a training uh, answer. What about, um, uh, Kathleen, on the gap between retraining workers to... So we talk about retraining for workers to move between sectors. What's the relative role for that versus just entrance? And we've, we've covered like the training of the existing staff, which Ryan's going to solve across the whole British industry. But what about people entering the labour force in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I found quite surprising when we were going through our stats was just the fact that how few people moving into green jobs are coming um, directly from study. Um, and obviously, you know, there will be exceptions to that. And I think part of it is kind of what, what Darren was getting at, at the trouble, uh, the difficulty that colleges have for designing and developing courses that are just going to yep. naturally follow on to these new green and emerging roles. Um, and yeah, not, not to be sort of an agony aunt for the further education sector, but you know, we know that they do struggle in terms of getting capital funding. And then we also know that just in terms of justifying a new course, quite often the funding available for students to sit in that new course is based upon how many students you taught in that course in the previous year. So it's just really hard to get new things going. Um, so it's like path dependency it, in the education system. Yeah, there literally is a path dependency. And then I think that the second thing is that, um, yeah, as Darren said, Finding teachers, you know, finding teachers and lecturers who are going to be able to come in and do it, um, and so yeah, I think I think that's probably a huge part of the problem. But just on the access point as well, whenever we do start to get these things sorted, we need to make sure that we're encouraging kids from a wide, you know, array of backgrounds to go into these jobs to begin with. Because as we've shown, like on average, they're really nicely well-paid jobs, um, and they deploy skills and technologies that will probably, you know. These great into the future. Do you, do you think the gender thing is just going um, on the green jobs are just going to go away because the inflow is so female heavy through qualifications, although not on the STEM side as you were it, mentioning earlier? Yeah, I think I think it matters. Yeah, marketing directors in twenty years, yeah. the the slow death of the patriarchy yeah. should mean there are actually some women in those jobs. So, like on our aggregate green job measure, yeah. yeah, I think that will erode. But if we were to sort of break that green job measure into its component parts and look at these sort of like new and emerging occupations versus the pre-existing occupations, then I'm probably less optimistic. Okay, all right. The, um, let's do something completely different um, for you on. So we, we're talking, we focus on the industrial end of this or the kind of home heating side, which is mainly a, a kind of large, in terms of volume is urban, even if you say the Somerset farmhouse is a big problem, we must focus on the Somerset farmhouse. So Henry uh, is asking us, if I can bring up his question here. The, um, so, and this is this is the bit one of the bits of the net zero transition the government doesn't really want to talk about, oh. which is what what is the level of change both to our they don't want to talk about what it means for changing our eating habits, 
They, um, uh, and they don't massively want to talk about what it means for farming. What do you reckon? Well, I mean, the food strategy last week was evidence of your point, wasn't it, unfortunately? I mean, at the same time that the statement on the floor of the House was um, being done on the food strategy, I was sat in the um, Joint Committee on National Security, which I sit on as the based committee chair, uh, taking evidence on uh, climate risk, the critical national infrastructure. And our debate on that day was about food security. Um, and I don't claim to be a huge expert in this area, but from what I heard on that day, it seems to be a massive problem. Uh, we import, I think, sometimes 60 plus percent of our food. We grow a lot of stuff in the UK that we export or use to feed cattle, um, but not actually to feed ourselves. Um, and the, uh, the kind of food supply network is a very complicated thing, but essentially if there's a climate risk in another part of the world, it causes massive problems in the UK. So on the one hand, I understand why the government pivoted from kind of reducing agricultural land in the UK to for real wilding back to a focus on food production. But the net zero transition, therefore, is one that's about security and resilience as well as climate adaptation. And I think that should be a source of hope and opportunity for rural communities because we're going to need to do more in terms of food production uh, for d uh, domestic resilience as well as kind of rewilding and carbon you, capture. So you want storage. to do more food production domestically? I think so, based on the evidence I had last week, yeah. I mean, I th there's an interesting question about how do you do that? You don't want to kind of do... Cost. Well, cost, but how do you use the subsidies in the right way? Let's not get into Brexit at this stage of the event. But uh, but also, how do you, uh, and again, I'm going inside of my scope here, my brief, but how do you ensure that you can increase food production without going down the track of intensive farming, which reduces the resilience of soil for carbon storage and so on and so forth? So there's some interesting areas there, which is probably good for the UK economy, but potentially also for export opportunities around how to do things differently in a net zero world. Very good. Since you've plugged Brexit, come along on Wednesday, guys. We'll be talking about what the longer term structural effects of Brexit are on jobs, mm. people and places. Yeah. On the agricultural sector, one of the interesting things is the degree to which the trade relationship should push us to produce. The change in trade actually pushes us to produce more domestically. Although, by the way, we import a lot less than we used to in the 1930s. It turns out an empire was heavily uh, made as heavily food importers, but they're um, amongst its effects, obviously not the only one. Um, but we are, we're much more resilient than we were then or running into the uh, war. But, anyway, but migration policy and trade deals Australia are pushing in the opposite direction, and we mm -hmm. definitely haven't worked out where we want that to come out uh, in the in the future. Let's bring up the, um, so come along on Wednesday, guys, for more. Right, let's bring up the results of the poll, and then Rian can give us her take on what, demo what the democracy is telling us and what people want to prioritise or think we should prioritise. Here we go. Oh, there you go. Look, I'm telling you we've got a serious problem. All right, OK, very good. You broadly agree. I do broadly agree. Well, good. Yeah, they want a bit of everything as well, so it's all fine. <laughs> free, free cakes for all. Right, okay, we've covered a lot of ground uh, today. I had lots of great questions. I'm sorry I couldn't do justice to all of them through the course of this session. Let's just go quickly around the panel for closing thoughts about, particularly focusing on the 2020s, not the 2050, not the 2050, which is too far to be able to cope with. But on the, when it comes to jobs, what's your top priority, Kathleen? Um, I think we need to invest in technologies and indeed in training, like right now. Yesterday. Okay, more spending. Very good. Ryan, what's your top priorities? More spending, but I, it's the, the, the business model piece. I don't think we have to assume all the spending comes from the state. I think businesses will invest because there's plenty of opportunity, but they need the frameworks and to understand the models against which they're going to invest, and the jobs will come from that. Very good. So it's a certainty will bring the spending yeah. in. Yeah. Darren? 
I'm going to give a very geeky answer. Oh, excellent. You're very, in the right place. It's not very populist, but um, I would like to see more technology roadmaps from government. Ooh. Where we are now, where we need to get to, and what the investment decisions and skills requirements are between A and B. They refuse to publish them, and I don't know why. Well, you think they've got them secretly? I don't think they have them, which okay. is probably why they don't want to. It's like a where's your homework <laughs> issue. But, but I would like them to have them. I've asked for various technology roadmaps, and I've been told it, no every single time. Okay, and would that, would that help you as well? If you, would these roadmaps help on the business model? Yeah, definitely, definitely would. Okay, all right. We want technology roadmaps, people. <laughs> I reckon the geeks will absolutely love those, but then there'll be a massive row about whether the roadmap is right or uh, wrong. Right, that gives us a good focus. Can I um, thank you all for coming today, whether it's online or in person? Can we thank our panel for their thoughts this morning? As I said, come along to the next uh, Economy 2030 inquiry session on Wednesday on Brexit. I suspect there won't be quite as much consensus in that as there has been uh, this morning. And I want to say one last thing, which is this is uh, Kathleen's last event with the Resolution Foundation before she goes to sort out the strategy uh, for our media regulator, which is very sad for us, but very exciting for uh, her. So, Kathleen, it's been great working with you the last few years. You're going to do great stuff in your new role. Uh, you'll be even transitioning, and maybe you'll get some training when you go and do it. No, you won't. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.